All right, good morning. Am I on? Good morning. We're going to jump right in today. So Psalm 88, verse 1. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Or you can just listen, that's all right. Psalm 88, verse 1. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lay in the grave." whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pits, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your tears and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your tears have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. And darkness is my closest friend. We're doing a series on the Psalms that we're calling God's Playlist. And we're trying as a staff to give you a taste of what's in the Psalms. We can't cover all the Psalms, but we want to give you a taste. And not just the ones that we all know that we're familiar with, but some of the ones that maybe you're not so familiar with. And I would imagine that most of you are not aware or were not aware of this Psalm until I read it just now. And that's not a criticism because that was true for me. About two weeks ago, I'm looking through the Psalms, looking for what I'm going to preach on. And I saw this Psalm and I had no recollection of ever reading it. And I must have because I've read through the Bible numerous times, but I don't remember this psalm, probably because it didn't quite fit right with my theology, my view of Christianity, and so most likely I read it, I shook my head, and I moved on. What makes this psalm so hard for us to understand? I think the first thing that makes it difficult to understand is that it has some, what I would maybe say is bad theology. Maybe that's just me as a pastor, but this guy talks about death as a place where God forgets people. He asks God, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do the dead rise up and praise you? And I want to say, yeah, they do, buddy. Jesus rose. We're going to rise someday. Heaven's a great place. Why are you so pessimistic about dying? What's the big deal? Dying's a good place. Paul says to die is to be with Christ. But I can probably give this guy a pass. He's in the Old Testament. We know that the Bible is it's a progressive revelation, meaning God reveals more and more and more about himself until he gets to Christ. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. And so we can look at this guy and we can say, well, he just didn't understand fully what the afterlife was going to be like. 
And we can even argue that the afterlife for believers in the Old Testament was probably different from what it is now because of what Jesus has done for us. Probably they didn't experience God's direct presence after death. And so we can maybe give this guy a pass here and say, well, he just doesn't know about Jesus. But the second thing about this psalm that makes it so difficult is that it's very accusatory towards God. The guy has kind of a bad attitude. Even though he says that he trusts in God as Savior in verse 1, he spends the rest of this psalm complaining and accusing God. He, can, he accuses God of punishing him. He says, God, your wrath lies heavily on me. You've brought me to the point of death. God, you've taken away my friends and my family. He says, God, you've trapped me. Not just you've allowed some bad things to happen, but God, you have literally trapped me in these terrible circumstances and I can't escape from them. And he accuses God of rejecting him. He accuses God of hiding his face from him, of refusing to answer his prayers. These aren't the kind of statements about God that we as Christians feel real comfortable with. If somebody in your small group started saying these things, we'd probably want to correct them. We'd want to jump in and say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Okay, I understand you're feeling low, but let's, let's just make a few things clear here, buddy. God isn't mean. He isn't far away. You just need to have a little more faith. You just need to trust him. That's what we'd want to say. But this guy isn't listening to us. And to make matters worse, there is no positive, hopeful, faith-filled ending Christians, especially American Christians, we love happy endings. I love happy endings. I refuse to watch movies that I know have bad endings. That's just what I am. I'm, I'm just like, what's the point, right? A life has enough bad endings. I don't need to watch a movie about it. I don't find that very entertaining. I used to get frustrated with Law and Order because it was kind of an interesting show, but it often would have kind of a negative ending. Or it didn't wrap it up very well, and it made me frustrated. It's not entertaining to me. You know, I can handle a psalm that starts out in despair as long as it ends with, with a confident faith in God's salvation, right? That's what I want as a, as a good American Christian. But here, the psalmist ends by saying that darkness is his closest friend. In fact, the very last word of this psalm in Hebrew is darkness. So probably we could translate it as, my closest friend is darkness. That's how it ends. What kind of a psalm ends with darkness as its last word? That doesn't sound very Christian. Where's the message of hope, of faith in God? Isn't God supposed to be our closest friend when we go through dark times? And this guy's a Jew. He should know better than to say things like this. I can understand if this is like a, a pagan writer writing about this, but this guy, he's a believer. He needs somebody to take him aside and set him straight and say, look, buddy, if you can't affirm God's goodness in spite of suffering, then you just need to be quiet, right? It's like my mom used to say, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Just be quiet, buddy. Why would God inspire a man to write down these depressing, angry feelings that he is struggling with? And why would God then lead people to include this in Scripture? In other words, why is this hopeless, depressing psalm with bad theology in God's playlist? Who wants to listen to a song like that? What's the point of having this in the Bible? Western Christians often choose to be naive about suffering. We emphasize the happy side of life. Most of us know that suffering is inevitable, but we try not to think about it. 
And we try to downplay how bad it could actually be for a genuine Christian. I mean, after all, doesn't Isaiah say that God will carry us on wings like an eagle? I once saw a Christian meme that said, why walk through hard times when you can fly over them? It had an eagle flying. I wasn't quite sure what it meant, but it looked nice. There's a lot of that stuff on Facebook. Psalm 91 says that God will protect us under his wings. Paul assures us that God is using everything for our good and nothing can separate us from his love. And if these things are true, then how bad could suffering really feel for a genuine Christian? The answer is pretty darn bad. Just think of Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think Jesus felt like he was flying over his troubles on the wings of an eagle in that moment. Or think of Job. By including this psalm in the Bible, God is helping us to face a reality that is universal, even for Christians. Believers used to call it the dark night of the soul. But God is also showing us that he doesn't abandon us in those times. Even when we express feelings of anger and rage and despair towards him. There are three lessons that I want to draw out today from this psalm. The first lesson is that darkness can last for a long time. Darkness can last for a long time. There are more laments than any other kind of psalm in the Bible. So if, if you look through the psalms, uh, there's, there's happy psalms, there's worshipful psalms, but of all the psalms, laments compose most of them, compose the majority. And of laments, when you read them, they, they start by expressing sadness and, and they're asking God for help. But normally, typically, they end on a positive note, the way we want them to. They end by asserting God's, God's salvation. There's only two laments that don't end that way. Psalm 39 and Psalm 88, the one we're looking at today. Most laments, in most laments, the darkness begins to lift. As you read it, it starts out really bad, but then the darkness begins to lift. The circum- either God begins to change the circumstances in this person's life, or he gives the person an inner sense of peace, an inner sense of his presence, a sense of his love. And so even though the, dark, the, the, the out external darkness is still there, the person says, God, I trust you. I feel you. I know that you're with me. But when a lament ends with the word darkness, we get the message that that darkness isn't lifting. There's no glimmer of light in this psalm. There's no change in circumstances. There's no inner sense of God's love for this guy. He prays and he prays and he pleads for relief, but he's still in darkness. It won't go away and nothing seems to help. Darkness can last for a long time and there isn't always a simple solution. You can pray and you can worship God and you can live right as far as you can tell, as far as your church community can tell, and yet still be plunged into darkness. But what about God carrying us and protecting us and working all things out for our good? Those verses are still true. But the Bible never promises that they will feel true from our end. You will go through times when you don't feel like God is carrying you and protecting you, even though he is. Times when you can't think of a single good reason why God would allow you to suffer the way that you are. Paul talks about this in his own ministry. Paul 
2 Corinthians 4, he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. And what Paul is saying is that we're going through some hard times, and we are, we are hard-pressed. And he goes on and he talks about persecution. He says that they, they don't have enough to eat, they don't have enough clothes. This is Paul and, and the people who are ministering with him. He says, we are hard-pressed. He says, we're not crushed, we're not, we're not dead yet. It's only a flesh wound. But it's bad. We are hard-pressed. And he goes on, he says, we are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We haven't given up. We haven't turned away from God, but we have no clue why he's allowing us to go through this. I mean, we're his ambassadors. We're his apostles. We're doing what Jesus told us to do. We're doing the Great Commission. And yet he's allowing us to be stoned and beaten and to not have enough to eat and to not have enough to wear and to have all these hardships and we don't get it. And if that could happen to Paul, then it could probably happen to us. Now, you may say, as I used to say, if, if this is true, even if it's true, what's the point of thinking about it, right? I mean, what's the point of thinking about darkness when I'm feeling good? Don't rain on my parade. I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. And the simple answer is that our experiences in life are greatly affected by our expectations, there was a psych experiment that was done. You know, psych majors need something practical to do. And so they were doing this, this psych experiment. I, I like to tease my wife. She was a psych major. And so there's this room, and in the room it's just a normal, ordinary bedroom. Um, you know, bed, lamp, lampstand, just some typical stuff you'd expect to see in a bedroom. And the, there's some people on the outside. The door's closed. And before they go in, the person says, the, the, the person doing the experiment says, this is a honeymoon suite. So they go in, and they look around, and they say, what a dump, right? This is not a honeymoon suite. Different people are put into that room, and the, person, the door's closed, or they're, they're on the outside, the door's closed, and the person doing the experiment says, this is a prison cell. They go in, and they say, not bad. Expectations control experiences. They affect how you experience reality. Many of us have this abstract belief in the possibility of intense suffering. Intellectually, we know that it's possible, while at the same time we have a practical expectation that we will never actually face such darkness. It only happens to other people. But wise expectations about life make darkness bearable when it comes, while unrealistic expectations can make it unbearable. And this psalm can give us wisdom if we let it. Darkness is coming, and it can last a long time. But, point two, darkness can also produce honesty and display grace. Darkness can also produce honesty and display grace. This guy is praying... (laughs) But he's not controlling his temper. He is ticked. He is, he is angry. He is enraged at God. And he is accusing God. He says, God, I want to praise you. But how can I when you're treating me this way? What is there to praise you for? Don't you want me to tell people about your faithfulness? Isn't that the point? Then why aren't you answering me, God? Why aren't you delivering me? And then in verse 15, he says, he says God, from my youth, you've treated me this way. He's looking back on his life through the distorted, colored lens of his present sufferings. He's looking back and he's projecting all of his sufferings over the course of his life. 
He's being unrealistic. He's being emotional, but he's, he's doing it. And he says, God, this is how you've always treated me. You've never been there for me, God. He is not speaking reverently to God. He's not speaking respectfully to God. Many people would say that he's speaking blasphemously to God here. And yet God didn't censor this prayer from the Psalms. God didn't say, well, man, if you're going to talk that way to me, then forget you, buddy. Instead, he included this prayer as a song in his playlist. He's saying, I'm still the God of this man despite the way he talks to me. Derek Kidner wrote a commentary on this psalm in Psalm 39, and he says, the very presence of these prayers in Scripture are a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. He knows how men and women speak when they are desperate. And I think God appreciates their honesty. You know, we have this natural tendency as humans, to want to present ourselves in the best possible light to others. It's just natural. And it's probably good. In a fallen world, love is not unconditional. And so if you were just very real with yourself at a job interview and you just told all your baggage, all your issues, you're not going to get that job, right? If you're very real on your first date with somebody, there's not going to be a second date, okay? You're You're not finding a spouse. We tend to do that. And it's probably wise to some extent, but we do the same thing with ourselves But when we look at ourselves, and we also do it with God. And so when you're going through, you're struggling, you're having some hard times, it, it's tempting to want to go to God and, and not even want to, we just do it naturally, and say, in our heart, we're, we're frustrated with God, we're confused with God, we feel, we feel like God's let us down, but we feel like we can't tell him that. And we say, God, I'm struggling, but... And then we, we go into our religious language, right? And we're like, oh, but God, you, thou art holy, and I trust in thee. And I mean, we, we, maybe you don't use old English, but we, we tend to be kind of religious in our prayers. Oh, I'm still trusting you, God. I'm having a hard time, but I trust you. When really in our heart, we're just pretty bitter and upset with him, but we don't feel like we can tell him that. But darkness, real deep darkness, often forces us It brings us to the point where we get real with God in our prayers, where we are forced to confess to God that we are not reverent, godly people who have our lives in order and we have everything figured out. Rather, we are confused, we are angry, we are broken sinners who are ticked off at God, and we finally just tell Him that. And when we reach that point, we may initially think that we have reached the end of our faith. That's kind of our first reaction when we get there. And we're just being honest with God about all our feelings, all our junk. And we're like, you know what? There's no way God will accept me now. Clearly, I'm not a Christian. But what actually happens in that moment is that by being honest with how we feel and who we are, we see God's grace more clearly. We're still His children. Despite our sin, despite our weaknesses, He chose us, and He drew us to Christ, not because we always talk nicely to Him, not because we say the right religious things and have good manners and have all of our doctrinal beliefs figured out and we read our Bibles every day, but simply because He loves us. For God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that should be a relief to some of you who feel like you really have to perform. 
I'm not saying it's good to speak disrespectfully to God. I'm not giving you permission to be flippant with him. But I am saying that he can handle your honesty when you're really struggling. He wants you to be honest with him, and he still loves you. And so darkness can last for a long time. Darkness can produce honesty and display God's grace. Third, darkness can reveal genuine faith. Darkness can reveal genuine faith. When you are going through a really dark time, you don't feel like you are benefiting from serving God. You don't feel like it. You see no no financial benefits, no health benefits, no relational benefits, no warm fuzzies in your hearts. And that's important. Think about the book of Job. It starts with Satan taunting God. He says, look, God, Job doesn't serve you out of love. He serves you because of all the nice things that you give him. It's trading. You give him blessings, and he gives you worship and obedience. But if you take away his blessings, if you take away his happiness, he will curse you. He will turn his back on you, God. So God lets Satan take away Job's blessings. And Job gets really angry. Okay, sometimes we kind of skip over that. We're like, oh, Job is this faithful man. Well, if you actually read the book of Job, there's about 30 chapters where Job is just railing on God. He is angry. He is ticked. He accuses God of being unfair, just like our psalmist does. But he never curses God. He never turns his back on God. A lot of theologians view the story of Job as symbolizing the story of all believers. Satan's accusation is still the same. He claims that we only serve God for the blessings. And so God allows us to go through some really dark times to show that our love for Him is real. To show that God doesn't have to bribe us to worship and obey Him. That we do so because we love Him and we do trust Him. You know, you can say what you want about this psalmist's uh, poor theology, his, his disrespectful attitude towards God, and his weak faith. There's one thing that is undeniable here. He is still talking to God. He's still talking to God. He hasn't cursed God. He hasn't turned his back on God. He's, he's not even complaining about God to other people. He's complaining about God to God. He wants to praise God. He wants to tell about God's faithfulness. He's really angry, but he hasn't given up. You know, the opposite of love is not anger, it's apathy. Anger can mean that somebody selfishly wants his own way, but it can also mean that a person cares enough about the relationship to get angry when something threatens it or threatens that person. Selfish anger generally leads a person to abandon a relationship if she doesn't get her own way. But anger motivated by love continues to pursue the other person. And that, I think, is what we see in this psalm. This, to me, this does not sound like the selfish anger of a person who is quick to walk away from religion when God doesn't meet his demands. This sounds like the heartfelt anger of a person who is in love with God and who is desperate to sense God's presence again and who will pursue God until that happens. You know, even if all you can do during dark times is to just hold on. Just hold on. And if all your prayers to God are just you telling Him how how confused you are and how angry you are with Him, that will be enough. 
to prove that there is genuine love for God in your heart that is given by the Holy Spirit, and it is sufficient to hold you to Him. You'll find that no matter how angry you are, you are still captivated by the glory of Jesus. And therefore, you can't walk away from Him even if you try. And when the darkness leaves or when it lessens, because it will, you'll have greater strength and confidence as a Christian because your faith has been tried and proved genuine. And we have reason to think that that is what happened in this psalm. Uh, If you look under the title, uh, you see in italics the name Heman, Heman the Ezraites. And this person is mentioned in 1 Chronicles. Oh, I get Chronicles and Corinthians, I always miss them. He's mentioned in 1 Chronicles as, the, as a leader of the Korahite guild. He's a descendant of Korah. Korah was a worship leader at the time of David. This guy is a descendant of him. And he is mentioned as a leader of the Korahite guild that wrote many psalms. He's remembered as a great man of God. So 1 Chronicles is written after the Jewish exile. It's a history looking back. And so they are remembering Heman. They're remembering him as a great leader. His darkness, apparently it passed. And he left a legacy of faithful service to God. He came through it stronger. Now, you could say, well, how do I know that that will be true of me? I'm, I'm glad that's nice for old, old Heman, but how about me? How can I be sure that there's a, lar- a light, not a lart, a light at the end of my darkness Heman talks about God hiding his face from him and about darkness being his closest friend. Does that remind you of anyone else? Another man who experienced excruciating darkness and felt like God had forsaken him? Jesus got the ultimate darkness. Jesus got the real wrath of God for our sins. He was absolutely and totally abandoned so that we will never be. His darkness was complete so that our darkness will only be partial and temporary. He took the punishment for our sins on the cross, experiencing the full darkness of God's hatred for sin so that someday the darkness that we experience will be turned into eternal lights. Jesus is God's answer to the psalmist's sarcastic question in in the middle of the passage. Do the dead rise up and praise you, God? Yes, they do. Jesus did, and someday so will we. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are not only the God of the optimists, but Lord, you are the God of the pessimists. You are not only the God of those who are going through good times, you are the God of those who are going through bad times. And we thank you, Lord, that as Christians we are commanded to to laugh with those who laugh, but to also mourn with those who mourn. And Lord, you are, you are God in all conditions and all circumstances. Help us to not um, compartmentalize our faith to only times when we are feeling good. Help us to be honest with you when we're really struggling and to experience, to receive your grace. And Lord, for any, of, any person today who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would allow the death, the suffering, the darkness that Jesus experienced to be credited it to them by faith so that they can experience eternal light. 
We ask for these things in the name of Jesus, for his glory. Amen. Would you stand with me for the benediction? Peter says this. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Go in peace. You're dismissed. Thank you.